0: Okay, so although this story is not a story of a romance murder like the previous episode, the murder did take place on February 14 of 1977. And it was a story that definitely shook the rural town of Indiana in Hollinsburg. The more I researched this case, the more I realized how much it had shaken the town back then. I'll be going into details later on. So Hollensburg is in the rural area of Indiana, about 50 miles west of the Indianapolis metro area. It's a very small town and it's mainly only known now because of these infamous murders. The story starts with four young men, Roger Drollinger, 23 at the time, David Smith, 17, Michael Wright, 21, and Daniel Stonebreaker, 20. For the infamous Indie podcast episode on this Hollenberg massacre, the four men were part of a quote-unquote gang back then, and they had actually cut themselves to make a blood pact um, saying that they would each kill someone, otherwise the rest of the gang members would kill those that didn't kill someone. So... Out of these four men, Roger Drollinger, who was 23, already had some sort of criminal history. Some related to weapons and others related to drugs. But he was not only the oldest, but he was also the only one that had like a major criminal history. So after they cut themselves, apparently the only reason they wanted to kill someone was to simply quote, know what it felt like to kill someone and to feel the rush. So it's not like they were going out and killing someone like out of anger or like a passion crime. They literally were just looking for literally anyone to kill just for fun of it. Earlier in the day of the murder on February 14, the four young men were in the woods when Drawlinger, the older one, killed a German shepherd dog that crossed their path simply to show the other men, quote, how easy it was to kill. For many of us that are somewhat like into the crime stories, we know that when kids grow up, one of the early signs of a murderer or a serial killer is killing animals like for fun. Um, And this man was pretty old already. He was 23. So I think it was the first red flag that he was going to eventually become a serial killer. After they killed this dog, the four young men, per their pact, were actively looking for their victims. So they were walking around in the small town of Hollinsburg. Basically as if they were hunting, you know, to find their victims. As they were walking, they came across the park community mobile home area where they found a specific home that they watched for some time before making their attack. They spot the home of the Spencer family. And for the infamous in the podcast, what attracted the four men to this house was two brand new cars that were in the driveway. So the four men cut the phone and electric wires from this mobile home. And while they're watching and sort of praying around the area, they noticed that Keith Spencer, the husband and father, left for work. So it sort of gave them like a green flag, you know. The alpha male isn't in the house. We can go inside and just see what we can find inside. Shortly after Keith drove off to work, they storm inside the house where they find Betty Jane Spencer, mother and wife, along with her son, Gregory Brooks, 22, and her stepsons, Raymond Spencer, 17, Reeve Spencer, 16, and Ralph Spencer, 14. As soon as the men storm inside, they point their flashlights at you know the house, and the first person they see is Betty Jane, the wife. Um, the timeline is kind of unclear, but later on, um, I do have a timestamp of one in the morning, so I can only assume right now it's maybe sometime midnight between midnight and one a.m. But it's pretty dark. In the Indie Star article on this murder, they stated that the four men forced Betty and her four kids to line up on the floor facing down, then methodically pumped 11 shotgun rounds in their heads. Um, From what it sounds like, the four men had each had a shotgun and then just shot, like each shot one person at the same time. Betty said that there were some clicking noises behind us and then suddenly there was a shot fired behind Greg. Before they were shot, the four men asked their victims if anyone had money and then took whatever money the victims had in their pockets, which added up to about $30, but $30 back in the 70s, you know, I'm not sure. It's definitely more than $30 now. So when I was researching and reading this, I was thinking, where is this information coming from? Although more than half of the Spencer family was murdered, Betty Jane, the mother, was the only survivor left from those that were shot at that home that day. And she survived to tell the whole story later on in court. Like I mentioned before, they were all shot in the head. However, Betty was wearing a wig that literally saved her life. When they shot her in the head, her wig flew off. So the murderers thought that it was her scalp and her flesh shooting off but it was actually her wig that flew off and she was left basically intact she was however shot in her shoulder and her arm and she had like 80 pellets left inside of her until she died did they shoot her with a pellet like a yeah she literally had 80 pellets inside of her until she died in 2004 oh my god But thankfully, her wig literally saved her life. So after the four men shot and killed the four sons, they stole a shotgun that they found in the Spencer home and then left the home and took... Hold on. After the four men shot and killed their victims, they stole a shotgun from inside the house, then left the home And two men drove away in the car that they had originally driven in, and two other men drove off in one of the new cars that they saw in the driveway. So basically, they're stealing a car and stealing the shotgun from inside the house on top of killing four people. So after the murders left, Betty got up and with whatever strength she had in her, um, she got up and... She said, quote, I looked around at the boys and I said, is anyone alive? And nobody answered. And that's when I realized it was a blood rushing from our boys that sounded like a waterfall. I know, it's so sad. So after she gets up and realizes that everyone is dead except for her, she walks to her nearest neighbor's house, begging them to help her call the police. And this is where I have the only timestamp of 1 a.m. Shortly after the police arrive, and right away they start searching for the four killers, but they were nowhere to be found until the next morning. Ironically, Dralinger, which is the oldest murder, showed up on a tr- to a trial from one of his previous charges related to a drug, and he was literally in his trial like like nothing had happened, like he hadn't just killed four people the night before. So he's at a tr- at a trial for a. Like a completely unrelated charge, after he killed four people, that he willingly showed up to. Yeah. However, at this point, from my research, it, it's not, it's not obvious that it was him that killed the four people, but it, you know, it was just like a coincidence that like he killed four people at 1 a.m. and then like at 9 a.m. he shows up to his trial. So weeks pass by, and like the four men are nowhere to be found. However, two weeks later, um, drawlinger and his wife are doing a TV interview where he's alleging that he is um, innocent of the charges that he was being charged for at the trial, and that's where Betty was able to identify that he was the killer. He eventually turns himself in, and then during his testimony, they're able to find the three other men, and you know it was it was a very quick trial how how do you defend yourself to killing four people you know with Betty's surviving testimony so the trial was very quick and they were all for they were all four charged with first degree murder and they were each sentenced to four consecutive life sentences one for each of their victims i'm just blown away by how brazen this case is as well as the last case yeah what is it about valentine's day murders that just no one thinks anything through and and the worst part about this is that they like the one we talked about last time was at least like a passion crime you know like oh i did it for you and i killed my wife for you whatever but this one they literally killed just to feel the rush of killing someone So after they were charged with their life sentences, they were serving their time at the Pendleton Correctional Facility in Indiana. And Roger Drawlinger, the man who essentially orchestrated these murders, was found dead in his cell on January 29, 2014, at the age of 60. And all the articles that I read said the same thing. However, I couldn't find if he died of natural causes or if. You know he was killed or if he was ill whatnot. not so his death is unknown the cause of his death is unknown but he did die at the age of 16. David Smith and Daniel Stonebaker continue to serve their time at the Pendleton Correctional Facility same one they are now 62 and 65 respectively Michael Wright is at a mental health facility also in Pendleton. I couldn't really find why he's the only one at the mental health facility, but he's still in the same area, just in the mental health part of it. The most recent update that I I found was as of July 2021, and it is that David Smith is seeking parole, given the fact that he was only 17 when he was charged with life and no parole. Per the U.S. News article, quote, the U.S. Supreme Court in 2016 ruled that a mandatory life sentence and no parole should not apply to juveniles convicted of murder. So because he was the only one that was 17 at the time of the murder, murder, he sort of qualifies for parole now. But as of 2021, um, the last thing that I saw was that he was going to apply for parole and Who knows if he'll be granted parole. The last thing that I do want to point out is that, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, this murder really shook up the whole entire town and even most of the rural Indiana nearby towns. Because it was something that was so tragic, you know, four men just showing up to a random family house and shooting all the family members was just so traumatic for everyone. So Mike McCarthy was the son of an in Indiana state trooper at the time, and he was nine years old when this happened. He wrote a memoir on his trauma and how how bad this event, you know, shook up the whole the whole town and his whole family. How affected he was by this whole thing. So he did write a memoir called Choking and Fear, a memoir about the Hollinsburg murders. In the infamous Andy podcast, he also interviewed and was able to do like a, like a question. How do you say like question? You know what? Instagram people do the question Q&A. and okay. so, um, a Yeah. In the podcast, he also did like an interview slash Q&A. And it's really interesting to hear his side of the story, like just being nine and then the fear of his dad going to work and not knowing if he was going to come back you know, because there's just four crazy people out there killing. Um, so if anyone is ever interested, you can always listen to the podcast and his interview and also listen and also read his book and his memoir. So it sounds like um, McCarthy, the author of the memoir, was doing like a presentation of his book. And as soon as he was going to start his presentation, this lady just came, came up to him and basically said the story of how Roger Drawlinger nearly killed her 37 years before. And she goes on to say how she was driving in her Volkswagen on Interstate 74 when she saw that Michael Wright, David Smith, Daniel Stonebaker, and drawlinger basically the four same men, Um, were pointing a gun at her while she was driving and were about to shoot her. But luckily, apparently some random other car, like, came in between and then was able to, like, move the gun away from her. So that's why she wasn't shot. But literally, like, they were going to kill her. He even warned his grandson, if we ever have to go to a necessary trip to the hospital in the middle of the night, Honk your horn before picking me up. Otherwise, he would have shot him. So, like, that's how scared everyone was. They were literally sleeping with guns besides them. And then there were other state troopers saying that was the only time we ever rode with two state troopers in the car. Otherwise, they would have only ridden with one. I'm going to go ahead and read Betty's obituary um, just because I think it really reflects on... She speaks about, like, survivor's guilt and all of that. So just so everyone gets an idea of, like, how bad she was impacted by this. So it reads, reflecting on a mother's courage, strength, and hope in memory of Betty Jean Spencer. On February 14, 1977, four local boys broke into the Spencer home in Hollinsburg, Indiana, and killed Betty Jean Spencer's four sons, Greg, 22, ralph 14 reeve 16 and raymond 17. greg was her son by birth and the others were sons by marriage betty was also shot but lay still and the intruders thought she was too dead after the shooters left although severely injured betty was able to get up and ran through the cold winter snow to the neighbors to get help for weeks betty begged god to let her die She struggled with survivor's guilt and spent four years angry, her faith wavering. But one day, Betty changed. She wanted to live. She wanted to take a stand for other victims. She was living through a hell and wanted to change things. She stood up, took a breath, and began healing part of her grief journey. Talking, talking, and more talking. She took her victim's right crusade all the way to the White House, Influencing changes in 56 Indiana laws. She met with President Ronald Reagan three times to receive awards for her tireless efforts on behalf of crime victims. On April 29, 1992, Leanne Houston's son, Greg, was born. While still in the hospital, the phone rang. It was Leanne Ann's, Betty. She was crying and said, Thank you for making the time to name Greg no longer a bad word to say. For 15 years, she had longed to hear her son's name spoken. Leanne didn't realize the impact of that until her own son, Greg, was dead, and she too yarned his name. For many bereaved parents have experienced the same feeling. During the last few years of Betty's life, Leanne would sit with her aunt for hours and talk. Betty talked about what she had gone through, the trials, the grief, and the tears. When Betty gave her last TV interview, it was about hope. Betty Jane Spencer died in 2004, but it wasn't until September 19, 2005, that Leanne understood what her aunt was going through. In September 2005, Leanne's son, Greg, died, and all of Betty's words began washing her over him. To the end, Betty talked of hope. She showed everyone around her what hope was. Finding hope is not always easy we each make a choice to seek for ourselves and to share with others. Betty made the following comments when asked about her legislative experience at both state and national levels. She said, quote, I didn't even know which door to use at the state house, but Betty found the door and walked through it. Betty stepped through those doors and found hope for her and for so many others along the way. As bereaved parents, we also come to many doors. We open some and decide that some should remain shut. Aunt Betty said, quote, I have learned many valuable lessons since the boys were murdered. On the night of their death, I learned that I am not afraid to die. And since then, the most important lesson that I learned is I am not afraid to live. Quote, Leanne said, I get up every morning and take a step because Betty talked and I listened to her about hope. I am living, I am breathing, and learning more about grief and hope every day. Bereaved Parents of the USA is a door of hope that Leanne Hudson chose to open. In reaching out to other bereaved parents, her wish for other mothers is that they will experience small steps in healing and hope, and that one day they will see themselves passing it on to others. It's a beautiful legacy she left behind in all the work that she did. Yeah. Like she, she took it up to the white house and the president. And I mean, I, when I was reading this, it she truly inspired other grieving parents to like, think about hope and, you know, learn how to grieve. Although it's easier said than done, I'm sure. But she really made her legacy, like you said. It's really inspiring that Betty Jane was able to make such a positive impact before she left and tried to change so many laws. She really like took this super tragic situation and tried to put some good into the world from it. Like from her obituary, it was, I think it was pretty obvious that it took her many, many years to overcome her survivor's guilt. And um, like once she finally overcame it, I think she just work straight from that grief pain and she just made her way up like it's impressive that she made it all the way up until the president you know Ronald Reagan so like you said it's it's pretty impressive and and good for her that she was able to make such a great impact Mm -hmm. so that's it for today's episode thank you for being with us and we will be back on March 10th with our new category of international cases And as always, if you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on social media. We have Facebook, Instagram, TikTok at Realtime Crime.